The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Hello. You have Money in Your Life, a weekly show about how money influences your life. I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. Today we're going to be talking about families and communication. That's right, Brian. Our guest is Dr. Lee Hosner, Senior Managing Director at First Foundation in L.A. Lee's written several books on families and communication, and, you know, her books are so clear and straightforward. She uses great humor and common sense along with her skills as a psychologist. Lee has a really wide range of experience. She was a school psychologist in the Beverly Hills school system. And she's now an advisor to a wide range of families. And she gives you tools in her book that you can use with any child in your life. You know, they, one of the things that I appreciate about Dr. Hosner's work is that in her description, she speaks about four different facets of a family, the human, the intellectual, the social, and the financial. And she actually goes on to speak about developing capital as human capital and intellectual capital and social capital as well as financial. So to me, it's it's really intriguing, the breadth. And, and I think it was 17 years that she was there at the Beverly Hills High School. So her experience with families on all levels is, is uh, I, I find it fascinating. Absolutely. So we have Lee on the line. So let's bring her into the conversation. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Good morning. You have money in your life. <laughs> We, Lee, we want to start out talking about the things that Brian talked about, but in your mind, what is the legacy of a family? Well, I'm not so sure that we can say the legacy because families decide what their legacies are, and legacies are a combination of a variety of things. First of all, the legacy are the values that you think are very important and that you would like to pass on to future generations. I use that term legacy. It came from the most recent book that I wrote called The Legacy Family because I've always been very interested in how families sustain their success generationally, particularly if the family has been financially successful. I began to look at this and sort of the issues of wealth because what happens traditionally is that wealth didn't last generationally or it was misused from right. first generation to second. So the whole concept of is how do you develop those four capitals? You know, how do you develop a healthy family in terms of emotionally healthy? So that's a legacy that you have. How do you develop the competency 
of each individual family member, so they go on to self-actualize. You know, how do you develop the legacy of being fiscally responsible and learning how to manage money and not let money manage you? And finally, equally as important, is how do you develop a legacy that you really care about others and that you're here to make the world a better place, which is the social capital? Absolutely. So legacy is a very broad term which encompasses lots of different aspects. And each family will decide what they, how they want to be remembered. Actually, one of the questions when I'm running a family meeting that I often will, will ask the family to do an exercise, if somebody asks you to write about your family 50 years from now, what would you like that reporter to truly be able, how would you like them to be able to describe your family? Because everyone describes a very positive image. No one says, I want my family to be in court, you know, suing one right. another. Yeah. Uh, and, and so once you get that, you find out the values that each individual member in an in a extended family think are important. Absolutely. You know, the, that famous saying, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, it sounds like the work that you're doing and have done in the past is about breaking that cycle. And that cycle is not a U.S. cycle. I've been very fortunate to be able to really talk about issues of family and family and wealth internationally. So I really looked at it in Pakistan. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Some very, some very unusual parts of the country. And around the world, there is that understanding that as the wealth, as it relates specifically to wealth, it is gone. I mean, in Asia, they say rice paddy to rice paddy, and in Holland, they say clog to clog. Uh, so it's an international understanding that if you do not understand the management of the money in the family, it will be gone. One generation makes it. The next generation has a very nice time. And by the end of the third generation, we're back to the drawing board. Well, so let's talk about some of the tools that you use with parents uh, as they Say you have a wealth creator, the first, the first generation, and by wealth, I'm going to use the broader, ter the broader term wealth. It includes financial, but also the intellectual and human capital. What are, what are some of the things that families can do as they think about the next generation? Beyond the exercise that you just talked about, the 50 years, I think that's a great place to start. And I have always looked at two kinds of businesses. I mean, since I have been involved with individuals of, of means, and when we talk about wealth, we're not talking about gazillions, because you're in, the, you're in the, the territory of how do you manage the wealth to enhance these other capitals. Anytime you've got disposable income, anytime a family, you can pay for the rent, you can feed and clothe your family, but now we've got disposable income. How do we manage that disposable income so that it builds the human capital, it builds the intellectual capital, and builds the social capital? Uh, so when we are looking at, you know, how we, how we enhance this, we've got a business of the business, which is where wealth gets created. And people pay a lot of attention to the business of the business. There are meetings, there's strategic planning, they hold people accountable. If people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing in the business, they, they are fired. So we right. pay a lot of attention, and that's why businesses are successful. A business isn't successful because you just open the door one day and say, gosh, I think it'd be fun to have this business. And I'm not going to pay too much attention, but I'm just going to work in this business, and 20 years from now I'm just going to assume I have a successful business. But we've got a family which needs that same kind of discipline, and we don't do that. We have children, 
we just sort of hope it's going to be okay and keep our fingers crossed. And 20 years down the road or 30 years down the road, we just hope it's going to be all right. Right. But there's a lot of work that you have to do. So I, when I'm working in this area, I want families structured. We, we, have a, we have family meetings. We have agendas. Those four different capital areas that, that you mentioned have a, like a pull-down menu. For example, if a family wants to build their human capital, there are areas that they need to learn about, they need to practice, they need to continually getting themselves educated, and what, what are some of those areas? Well, how we parent and grandparents, right? How we effectively communicate, how we deal with conflict. You know, conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. So you, you have, have rules to learn around that. I'm, I'm not at all bothered by conflict, but unresolved conflict is where the problem is. So yes. families have to learn how to deal with any kind of disagreements. When we're talking about transferring wealth, from a generation one, if we have a very strong entrepreneur and who has built wealth, and he or she now is talking about how we're transferring the wealth to the next generation, we have to understand there's a different model of leadership because first-generation wealth is usually created by one strong decision-maker. And the model for how the next generation operates is not one strong leader following up the hill. The, the children have to collaborate. Because they're going to yes. be partners. We've suddenly created a partnership. And they yeah. have to learn what partnership looks like, which is different than I, I'm, you know, my way of the highway kind of, even a benevolent dictator. So they learn that. They learn spirituality. They learn morals, values, ethics. They learn um, health. I also, I also put it in, in human capital. So this is a whole drop-down menu of educational programs and learning that builds your, the, the human capital. In intellectual capital, you, it's everything about education, about career choices, about any kind of coaching and mentoring that you're going to be doing for family members. It's about governance, and governance refers to how each generation decides that they will make decisions. Mom and dad have one method of making decisions, and now the next generation has to learn how if they're going to manage any kind of shared Asset, and that could that could mean when I, I'm speaking broadly now about the asset, it could be how are they going to make decisions about the advancing health care of mom and dad? So we, right. they have to yeah. learn that governance. How do we make rules as a generation? And then finally, the last thing that I've been very interested and in, involved in is in this world of wealth transfer, where we've created a tremendous amount of trust. What's missing is no one gets trained on how to be a trustee. Who do you select to be a trustee? And if you're a trustee, have you been trained? And then how do we educate beneficiaries? That's all intellectual capital. Financial that... capital has its own set of learning, how you make money, how you manage money, how you invest money, all the issues around our family business, the role that every parent has to have regardless of the level of your wealth to teach that next generation how to be fiscally responsible. And we could teach our government that, too, also. I should probably go to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, be, well, that's a topic for another show. What happens right? when you spend money that you don't have? And, and then there's a program I do about the psychology of money, just understanding what money means to you. That's all part of financial capital. And then on the social, there's a whole variety of activities that you do that are your entire philanthropic activity. It can be volunteerism. It can be public service, writing checks, you know, creating a donor advice fund, creating a family foundation, 
but it's and and it's and through the social capital you can teach some of these other skills for example collaboration which is very important to me how great if you get your family to collaborate and start to practice giving money away together as a family collectively doing a philanthropic project that's how we practice collaboration using one of those other capital areas is that make sense yeah. so it's a long agenda yeah. i mean you could be working on this for years but it's it's focused and you yeah. pay attention to what's going on and you create the ability of each family member to feel their own importance and be able to develop their own unique skills and talents that's a healthy family so so lee i'm very curious the, the, what you've just described is is a, a very holistic very thorough understanding if you would take a minute and step back how did you come to, to th- this understanding i'm intrigued 17 years in in the beverly hills school district as the chief I, I, it's, as the psychologist i'm not sure if you were the chief the entire time but are these kinds of things that you're describing to us, I'm guessing they came out of years of experience of watching families. They did, actually. I, I, I credit that unique job that I had. I don't think that I was so much aware of issues of wealth and power and, and, cele- and celebrity until I plopped into the Beverly Hills School District, where you would assume, right, that those students should have the best of everything. The best right. of the houses, the best of the nannies, the best of the food, the best of the summer camps, right? Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you would expect that they would have a leg up on the ladder of success. Right. Well, not only did they not have the leg up, they were falling through the first slat. And so I began to be very much aware of, with all the advantages, why weren't why were we having so many problems? And why were the cases that, that got, you know, that I ended up in my office so complicated and so and so painful. And I have to tell you that, obviously, in my position as the psychologist in that district, you didn't want to be called into my office. This was not a good sign. I was not calling you in to say, gosh, you're doing just a great job. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there was some the sort of problem that needed yeah. to be talked with Dr. Hausner. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, you know, the classroom teacher couldn't manage it, and our counselor couldn't manage it, and the VP and the principal, so it gets booted up to the shrink. But those parents that sat in my office were devastated because the reality in life is you're going to be as happy as your least happy child. And they had no clue. They just were absolutely, in a way, clueless about what they were doing that were causing just the opposite reactions that, that every parent hoped for. And that, so I really began to think about that. And when I wrote my first book, um, Children of Paradise, and I started to research the literature about dealing with, you know, success and the next generation. There was relatively nothing. Right. I mean, everyone talked about impoverished individuals. Everyone talked about, you know, the immigration and immigrants coming. To, they, they talked at the lower end of the financial spectrum and, and how, you know, those people became empowered. But the top part of the spectrum, no one was paying much attention to as if, well, if you've got money, so what's the big deal? You know, it's kind of that attitude. Yep. That's where I first began to look at that. And, and as I looked at that, it was not only the issue of, you know, money or celebrity um, in, in a family. And Beverly Hills was very interesting because Beverly Hills has a variety of levels of, of success. You have first-generation wealth creators. You have individuals who are on trust funds. You have the whole entertainment industry, which is not just the actors and actresses, but everything that supports the, the industry. You have an entire immigrant population that came into Beverly Hills when the Iranian crisis 
erupted, and you know suddenly people I... had to be dislocated. So you had the issue of integrating a, a foreign culture. So there were all these interesting variables, you know, within that particular district. And then you started to look at where are the clashes. Well, you know, they have to share a family business or the or the ranch or the family vacation home. And how do four people now share something like that? And how do they get along? And how do they manage collectively? So it sort of led me, you know, down the yellow brick road to where yeah. I ended up today. Absolutely. Well, you know what? You you raise so many so many great issues. And one of the questions that comes to my mind is this this uh, your concern about families and the what you said about families that would show up in your office is that the intent of the parent is not to have children that are acting the way that that, that gets them into your office, but to to be coached differently. I mean, to to become aware of what they how they contribute to the development of a child and take the time to develop healthy children. And I guess one of the things that I hear with some of my clients is, well, it's too late. You know, I can't, I can't save them. And what do you say to parents who are in that situ, in that mindset? Where do you start? See, I am the eternal Pollyanna. Yeah. I don't believe that it's ever too late because I've seen some very, very difficult, complicated cases turn around. So I'm never willing to give up. Right. Um, now, I have, obviously, I think if somebody is 60 and they continue to pattern of destructive behavior, I mean, maybe I would say that I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> that, that, that might be less less worth your worth the time. There was a case, actually, several years ago when I was in a meeting and somebody heard me speak and they approached me. And this was an, a you know, man in his 70s and he started spinning this tale. And he was one of these kind of serial entrepreneurs. Not only had he made and sold a number of businesses, he had you know, passed through several wives. And he said, so he said, describing these five adult children who all had had significant substance abuse, psychological problems. Now, we're not talking about kids. We're talking about people in their 50s. Yep. And he said, do you think you could help them? And, and so he's talking to me. And he said, I don't know what to do. And my first response was, I think your next venture should be a rehabilitation hospital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know what? what where, there's the issue of coachability always. Yeah. You know, that would not are... be a coachable situation because at right. that point, that family had been so entrenched. With, and everybody at the, in the family, nobody was sober. This wasn't yeah. like a family that had had these issues and everyone was kind of had been in recovery. No yeah. one was in recovery. So you had 20 years of horrendous dysfunction, you're probably not going to turn something like that around. Absolutely. But in most cases, if people, and if people want help, if they really yeah. are motivated, yeah. you, there, it's never, you, you don't throw up your hands and it's never too late. Yeah. yeah. And you know, yeah. one of the things that I've been, I've experienced with families, and I'll say this real quick, if one person can move towards recovery and get a foothold, that changes the dynamic in that whole family. And that can ripple out if, if one person can, can get out of that kind of a substance abuse. Yeah, we're going to have to take this up on the other side of the break. So you have Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Please send us your questions by email at moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Or you can call us at uh, 866-472-5790.
You have money in your life. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Hello. You have Money in Your Life with Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, and we're continuing our conversation with our guest, Dr. Lee Hosner. Lee, before the break, you talked about uh, the programs that you work on with families and uh, that are very extensive. And I wonder if for our audience, we can start to talk about, and I I can hear a lot of our audience saying, that's going to take so much time. I wonder if we can talk about breaking things down so that there are things that our audience can take away from this and say, yeah, well, I I can try that. Well, you know, I think it, it, the first step, you know, this whole thing is sort of like how to eat an elephant. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> One exactly. Bite at a time. First, it's yep. not overwhelming, but if a family is going to start this, they start first by a, a family meeting. You've got a mother and a father and two kids. You sit down as a family and you say, we're really concerned with how we can become the best family. And so we're going to talk about the things that we want to be, you know, where do we want to go, what, what's, what, what's really working in this family, and then what would we like to change, what would we like to make better. I, I never say what's wrong with the family. I always say what would we like to improve because mm, we always going to be looking at improving. And you start regularly and you're, everybody in the family gets to participate. There, and there are family rules. No one is called stupid. No one gets cut off. You kind of have it, and you have an agenda. We'd like to talk about here's the agenda for this monthly family meeting. And you create a time so that now we've got these three children, 
and a mom and dad, and they sit down at least once a month, and they talk about this family. And they use this family meeting maybe to make some plans. Let's plan a vacation. Let's hear what the kids have to say. Uh, let's plan, you know, our donations. What are we going to do, you know, philanthropically? What projects are we going to do? What is working? What is working in our family? What isn't working? Where are the problems? And so when you, somebody brings the problem up, then how are we going to solve this? What are we going to do so that we don't have this problem? And we use this family meeting, maybe assign responsibilities, the chores that I call them, which some people look at me like I'm talking about, you know, when we came across in a covered wagon, <laughs> this concept that, that people should be doing chores in the family. Yeah, and so you absolutely. start this regular routine. And what I love on a family meeting is everybody gets to lead the meeting. So one month, the eight-year-old leads Oh, the that's a good idea. So now we're even starting to show people what leadership looks like and empowering. And it's as simple as that, as just sitting down and starting there. Then, right. you so know, everybody, everybody contributes to the agenda, and everybody has a chance to lead the meeting. Everybody. And it could be, look, I don't like the fact that my, my sister's always coming to my room and she's taking my clothes. That's, that's a problem this week. So now we talk about how we're going to deal with that. So now right. you're teaching how you deal with conflict and how you communicate, and you don't interrupt. If a family is very talkative, we, we sometimes use a talking stick. You can only talk when you're holding the talking stick. Mom and dad do not dominate the meeting because what this is trying to do is get everybody to feel that they were equally empowered in the family. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not rules. It doesn't mean that mom and dad abdicate their responsibility of being parents and not just tall pals. But in the family meeting, we want everyone to be feel like they can express themselves in a positive, constructive manner. That's the first step. Okay. That's, That's great. That's very good. That's great. That's great. So, great. Well, it, it looks like we have a caller, and I wonder if you're ready to take a caller, Lee. I'm certainly ready to take a caller. Okay. Well, we have Peter from Oregon. Can we bring Peter in? Hello, Peter. You have money in your life. Thank you, Ann. Dr. Hausner, I'm uh, really interested in the conversation you just started in terms of um, that family meeting. And one of the issues always in terms of, like, leading kind of meeting is um, not leading the witness. You know, in other words, filling the space with what uh, you want to talk about. And you talked a little earlier about the meaning of money. I'm curious about what are a couple kinds of questions that I could use in a family meeting to really get to what does money mean to a range of ages in the family kind of thing. Um, how do I how do I get at really getting a discussion going about what does money actually mean to my family unit? You know, I, Peter, I probably wouldn't lead out if you've never had a family meeting. Uh-huh. I wouldn't lead that with the first question. I wouldn't no. say we're having a family meeting and we're going to talk about what money means to us. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't think, I think people would sort of say, not know how to respond. Okay. I okay. think one of the first things, are, and, and it depends upon what are the ages of the participants. I think uh, one, one of the, if, if, we want to, if we want to direct this toward, say, fiscally being responsible, I think maybe one of the topics of the family meeting is how do we manage money responsibly. Um, um, one of the things that families do when they have teenage kids, for example, is they may use the family meeting to form a little investment club. And they start, you know, doing a little bit of investing. And so they learn how money grows, um, how they save their allowance. Um, If they're, you know, if you were talking about how you're managing, teaching this management of money, see, I don't think that young kids think about what money means to them. 
as an okay. adult, I think we are more introspective about, you know, what, it, what role did it play in our lives. I'm not so sure that younger members of the family can articulate them. Adults can. Uh-huh. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an appropriate conversation if you've got, or like, if you're running a family meeting, and I'll tell you where they become very important. You've got an extended family. Your kids are married now. And now I will tell you, if you think you did a good job just with your little primary family, the real test is when these three children bring in another person. Uh-huh. Now you've introduced a new family system into your little family system. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that, at that point, those kind of conversations about the role of finances in their life become important because we're talking about people that came from very different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And money may have been used in a very different manner. And so getting everyone to sort of talk about that and get sensitive to it helps the family, the extended family, kind of come to one collective understanding of the role that money is going to play in their lives or the role that the family money is going to play in their lives. Mm-hmm. Great. One, one thank, thing thank I want just, just quickly to thanks, Peter, for that call, but also to follow up on that, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Lee, which was talking about values rather than talking about the money, talking about the where you want the family to be in 50 years and the values that are that are that are central to that family function. And that's what I focus in on the primary family meetings is a lot about that. But I will tell you it's been very interesting. One of the things that I do, if I am doing a family meeting with a family business, and let's assume it's a successful business so that the business has a a profile in the community, and I'm talking to the next generation. It could be either, you know, we speak about G1, G2, G3. We we refer to the, the individual that created the wealth generally as a G1, although, you know, Adam and Eve are probably the original G1. But in terms of, of, how, we, of, of how we view the, the whole issue of the wealth transfer. So now we've got the wealth creator, and now we have a G2, and we have maybe a G3. When I have the chance to work with the younger members of a high-profile family, I always ask those young children, what do you think the wealth of this family means to you personally? Very interesting because... You know, a lot of families have done a very good job, and the the children will say, well, we know we're going to have to work and go to school and get educated, versus, well, we know there's so much money in this family, we're never going to have to work. Right. <laughs> but that's yeah. when I would ask, when I bring a direct money question to a younger population. Yeah. Leah, I'm curious, from... The kind of question you just asked there, um, you know, what does the wealth of this family mean to you? Uh, or, you know, to just if you were, is that something that the that a outs you're you're asking that question as an outsider, right? For a parent sitting at a table like the family meeting that that you were describing to Peter, um, can do you can f- find that that's that successful? Absolutely, because yeah. I think part of what you do in a family is manage expectations. Right. And I, I, exactly. I felt, I've always felt it's very important that you manage expectations. You know, you're doing this show up in, in the area of, of the Bill Gates world. You know, Bill Gates has been very verbal about what he's leaving his kids as an inheritance. Now, Bill Gates has said he's leaving his kids $10 million. It's a lot of money, right? A lot of money. But your father's worth $50 billion. Mm-hmm. So when Bill Gates says that, I think he's saying to his kids, He's managing expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they know that the bulk of that money will probably go into the foundation. They certainly are going to have a chunk. 
but the understanding is that the whole money is not passing. Mm-hmm. not right. passing to them. It's going mm-hmm. to go to making the world a better place. Now, we're not Bill Gates's, but I think that parents that manage expectations, um, you are a family of wealth, and you say to the, your children, I want you to understand what the wealth in this family is going to mean to you. What it's going to mean is you will not have to save for my grandchildren's college. And what it means is you probably won't have to save so much for your retirement. But you need to understand that our expectation is that you're going to get educated, you're going to have your own career, and for a significant portion of your life, you're going to be Mm -hmm. self-supporting. When you give those kinds of clear expectations, that next generation will get competent. If you don't, they have some mixed ideas about what a trust may mean to them, and maybe they're never going to have to work. See, it gets very confused. So I've always been for being very clear on expectations. Absolutely. Go ahead, Brian. Well, there's a, there's a piece in here around this. I really like this idea of managing expectation. And there's one that I see in my practice. I work as a financial coach. And when I'm working with a couple where both parents are working, so it's a two-income family, they're living in a nice part of town, the kids are going to school, the children become acclimated to that lifestyle. But there's not, there's not significant wealth there. There's there's income generation from the you know these two parents are generating a nice income that is allowing for this, but the, there's not wealth to pass on which would sustain it. So it seems like managing expectations in that situation is is different than than a large wealth, but it's also equally important. It's it is and and it's very clear that you say that we maintain this style of life because mom and dad both work very hard. I took my six-year-old granddaughter, I had to do an errand at a very, very fancy house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> it was really, and she's very astute, and she's with me, and we walk into this house with the tennis courts and the swimming pools, and there was a game room, you know, where they had, the children had an indoor game room that had the swings and everything, and, and there was another child there of my granddaughter's age, and the mother had said, would you bring your granddaughter? She can play while we do this business. So as we're walking out of the house, I say to Ava, Ava, do you like this house? She's, oh, Grandma, this is such a great house. And we're walking by the tennis court. And I said, would you like to live in a house like this someday? And she said, oh, yes. And I said, well, then you know what? You better go and you better get good grades. You better work very hard because it's going to take a lot of money to buy and or live this lifestyle. Somebody worked very hard. Now, I said that to a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. So if you like Brilliant. this then guess what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to work like mom and dad. And I think those parents that you're coaching need to say that to the kids. That what we will do is provide whatever it is they're going to provide. Maybe they're going to provide an education. We'll provide for, I mean, I said to my own children, you have four years of college covered. Now, see, in California, a lot of our kids are on the five-year college plan. And I said, (laughs) we are in this family are on the four-year college plan. We yeah. we will pay for four years of college. If you can't make it in four years, then my darling children, <laughs> the fifth year is yours. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. What, what Lee? Uh, several clients that I've had have said have come to me and said my my parents just tell me when I ask them about money, they tell me don't worry about it. I'm taking uh, I'm taking care of, and they have no idea. How, the conversation hasn't opened about money. Their parents are aging. They're beginning to be concerned about how, what their legacy may be or may not be, how much they may have to work, how much they 
won't have to work. And that, how do you counsel people on opening that conversation? You know, that is a challenging conversation because there are many parents who are afraid to talk. First of all, money is the last taboo. We do not talk comfortably about money. We're talking about everything else. But somehow or other, when the topic of money comes up, everyone freezes, yeah. and which is a shame because adult to adult, I have said to people that I work with, it's really important that your children have some sense of what you are going to pass because they are making their own estate plans. And your plans, not that you have to give them anything, but if you're not, let them know because they're making their own estate plans. That that's one way to look at it. But I would, and, I would, and if I could jump in, and those estate plans might be unconscious. They might be unspoken. There, there's there's two levels of estate plans here. There's the, the kind where you go and you talk with the attorney and you set that up. But I think children, children in their forties and fifties, are making assumptions. And if, if it's not clear with the parents what reality is, then that's going to end up with the complications. It will. But I think if they approach their parents and say, what we're trying to do, we really would like to have some information about what your plans may be. Not that we are trying to get anything or not, but we're making our own estate plan. And what you decide to do will have an influence on what we decide to do. Sometimes that's how to open the conversation. Mm-hmm. If the, if the senior parents see that there's some sort of a reason. Now, if they don't, if they don't, I advise people to proceed as if you will get nothing. That yes. whatever you get is gravy, is icing on a well-baked cake. Live your life as if you will not have an inheritance. And then it's a nice surprise. Get competent. Do your savings. Create your own sense of fiscal security. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we had a, really, what I really don't want is what we call the waiters of life. You know, I'm waiting for my parents to die for my inheritance. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. It's not a good place. Yeah. We had an email from a, uh, a sounded like a daughter-in-law who wanted to talk to her in-laws about gifts that they were giving to her kids. She didn't, they were giving extravagant gifts and she didn't really know how to stop that without having the grandparents be defensive. Do you have any thoughts on that conversation? That question, every time I talk about parenting, I probably get a question like that in some form or another because I am very big on entitleitis and, you know, not, not overindulging. Overindulgence is a real issue for me. So there are two things, and when, when that question is asked, I, there are one of two ways I respond. <laughs> I, I say to the younger, cause the, I, the younger generation will be in my parenting class, and when I talk about not overindulging, they'll say, Dr. Hauser, I believe that absolutely, but, you know, my, how, how do I put controls on my parents? I mean, they're out of control with, with the grandchildren. And so at that point, I say, tell your, tell your parents that you just heard a, a very prominent psychologist say that overindulged kids become drug addicts, and they will stop because they're going to take care of That's what I say. But I, I will tell you in a more in – more, but I'm, I'm okay with saying that. But in a more sensible vein, I would uh, – I, I, this is what I teach in, my, in, my, in terms of parenting. You go, the problem with overindulgence is not just that you're going to have spoiled kids. It's that they do not understand how to delay gratification. 
And without understanding how to delay gratification, you will not achieve in life. Because everything we do has a period of time where you're not comfortable. You've got to be able to have confidence to step out of your comfort zone and try something and maybe even fail. And kids that get totally overindulged and get everything that they want upon demand lose that ability to delay gratification. So those grandparents that are always indulging and overindulging, I speak to them more in terms of that. What will happen is that your grandchildren will not have the skills to wait and will not be able to be successful in life. That is something that they pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is really important. That's yeah. the that's the whole crux of the conversation is taking it to that level of yeah. and the you're not, choices you're not, and the consequences. You're not insulting. Mm-hmm. You, you're not insulting your mother-in-law and your father-in-law. And you would say, you know, I we are so appreciative of everything you do. And actually, what we would love, you don't have to indulge our children, you know, with things. You know, create an education fund for them for college. We'd love that. You know, fund summer camp. You know, fund an activity like that. You give them other suggestions of ways that they can do the things that grandparents want to do, but in a productive, healthy way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a, Absolutely. there's another piece. Oh, wait, I think we're about out of time. I've got a question I want to come back to after the break. Great. We're going to take a break right here. You have Money in Your Life with Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, and our guest, Dr. Lee Hausner, will be back in a couple of minutes. But if you have a question, give us a call at 866-472-5790. Talk to you in a minute. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Money in Your Life. 
we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Lee Hosner. And Brian, you had a question before the break. Yeah, we were talking about the indulged kids and how grandparents can sometimes be the ones who are doing the indulging. And I really appreciated what you said, Lee, that, that approaching the grandparents and saying that the delaying gratification is what they need to learn so that they can be successful in the world. And it just, as you were saying that, I could see, I, I can imagine that parents and their parents and the grandparents could get engaged in a conversation around that. That would open up a values-based conversation. Absolutely. That is exactly, and it's not being critical. It's no. not being critical. It's being, you know, as a daughter-in-law, you're a little bit on tricky grounds mm-hmm. because these are not, yeah. these are your in-laws. Right. And mm-hmm. so you, you know, you want the relation. I'm a grandparent. I have five grandchildren. So I, I practice what I preach. You know what I always say to grandparents? I said, grandparents have to realize that their grandchildren are what I call OPC. They're other people's children. You right. had your chance. And as a grandparent, your job is to support and be a cheerleader for your your children's children. children. You know, unless something horrendous is going wrong. I mean, you know, we've got abuse or something like that. Your job is to to support the parents. They this is these are their kids. Absolutely. Good. Thanks. It looks it looks like we have a caller. We have Laura from Phoenix. Laura, you have money in your life. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, well, I I just tuned in, and I had a question. You know, I'm, my husband and I were always trying to figure out how to streamline all of our payments and everything, and then I realized, and I've known this, but it just kind of hit me full force. You know, I'm paying for a telephone and car insurance, and um, with the Affordable Care Act, we're invited to pay for health insurance for our older children until a certain age. And, um, you know, at some point, my husband and I, we want to kind of wean our kids off of the cheat, as it were. But these are payments that are, they, they don't even think about, you know, they just pick up their phone and use it. They just drive their car and they don't even think about the insurance. And my son, who's in college, I'm paying for his tags on his car so he can, like, go back and forth to tolls. And I don't think he even realizes we're doing that because we started doing that when he started college. And I have to stop paying for everybody at some point, but I don't know when that point is. Well, you know, when that point is, first of all, you need to have a conversation with these, you know, adults, and these are not children, about their budget. Here is the budget. And this is what, see, I really like very much that you start putting kids on a budget when they're in high school. You ask them to submit a budget over which you have line item veto. So at high school, they start to be aware of what the clothing is going to cost, what their entertainment is going to cost. They submit the budget. You can adjust it, and they keep on that budget. They start to learn what things are cost. And if they, if they want something more than what you've allocated for the budget, then you know what they're going to do? They're going to get a job. They're going to right. get some sort of a job, and they will start to earn money. That's how you get them even in high school so that they're prepared when they go to college. If you've got kids in college, you hold a family meeting to say, we need to talk about what's going on with the expenditures. And I would have a poster board where I would list, this is what we are paying for right now. This we are not going to continue. I mean, you can decide that they can be on the dole through college. But when you are graduating, we, you need to be very much aware of what the expectations are going to be for you to be fiscally responsible. 
And, but it's got to be, you got to talk about this. They're not going to pick it up if it hasn't been discussed. And every expense that they would, ha- that, they, that it is allocated to their life needs to be on the board so they know the number. Now, right. I, I have done something because the question that is asked me of me, probably more than any other question, is this question about how much is enough. You know, how much is enough that I give my kids in college? How much is enough when they get you know, graduate, how much is enough should I transfer in terms of wealth transfer? And so I've got this sort of basket theory about what basket you fund. There's a, an interesting basket when you've got kids in college that I'm right. okay funding a little bit. It's called the launching pad. Your child graduates from college and now has to go out into the world. And that first job, maybe they go to New York and get a job in advertising for $40,000 a year pre-tax. It's a right. little difficult to live in New York. Right. You may say, we are willing to fund for a couple of years, help you with the cost of the apartment until you get the career going. But then there's right. a point we're going to say we're on a three-year launching plan. Then we expect you're going to pick up all these expenses on your own. This is, again, the articulation of managed expectations. And if your right. kids have no idea, the next family meeting, you've got a board there where you have every amount of money that you are – that's being allocated then, so they at least know. Right. Yeah, because I'm not even sure they even realize. Exactly. And on a conscious level, when they're on their phone or, you know, going to the doctor or whatever, that, you know, they're just so used to parents parenting and then, you know, having what they need. And it's it's just a very different world for parents, um, you know, than it was, obviously, when we were, when I was growing up. So... Um, Could your but, parents afford to do that for you when you were growing up? Um, yeah. No, I don't think they would have even thought that that was appropriate. But number one, we didn't have cell phones. Yeah. Number two, I don't think I ever used uh, health insurance. I, I know I had it, but I don't think I ever went to the doctor when I was younger. And three, I paid for my own car insurance because it wasn't very much. But these days, everything is so expensive. That but the, it's, but it's, I think it's what... Beyond, it's beyond Laura, what... Yeah. Laura, I'm going to have to interrupt you. I think what Dr. Hausner is saying, if I can just paraphrase, is the conversation has to start so that they, they may not know, but now now the conversation know. begins. Exactly. They've got yeah, they to know, know and they've Here's, got to learn they've got to learn from you, right? On that flip chart, if you had three kids, I would put Mary, Mark, Joni. I want you kids to become aware of what it's costing on a yearly basis for you to sub- live the lifestyle that you're living. And I, you put it out there. <laughs> this is not, yeah. not a Lee, not Lee I think this is such an important issue. It, it's, yeah. it's, I call it, like you're saying, make it visible, transparency, so that everybody has a shared reality, so that everybody has a, a common reality. But one of the issues that, that a lot of parents are facing is that their kids are 22, 24, and 28, and they live in three different states. And they get together once a year at Christmas, and that makes it very difficult. Have you seen a successful way to have this kind of meeting amongst a family when they're spread out like that? Have you, are people using you know, GoToMeeting or WebEx? We're using uh, GoToMeeting. We're using FaceTime. I actually led a family meeting in Australia on, on Skype. We did a four-hour yep. meeting. I was in Los Angeles. The family was gathered around, whatever they were gathered around. Video conferencing, I mean, there's now technology that makes it easier for families to stay connected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I think no. that's a that's a big step to just to get the family to say, Oh, we're still a family, we can be connected, we can have these meetings rather than talking one you know, dad talking to son, mom talking, you know, those kinds that's of things right. to get together as a family. And everyone hears the same thing. Yep. Right. Yep. I right. like that idea. And you do that on a regular basis. Yes. And but this but this issue of being clear about what the what the spending is and what the expectation is on the po- who's responsible for what when mm-hmm. is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a question on the other side, an email from a grandparent who wants to help her grandchildren with camps and things like that. Uh, but her kids are her son is pushing back. She's got to respect that. I got to tell you, you have to respect what you're, t- I, I, I firmly, this is, and I believe this, you do not do anything that has to do with finances for your grandchildren without permission of the mother and the father. These are not your children. Right. You, 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 you have to collaborate with the parents. Now, I don't know why they would not, you know, what, what, what would be the, I mean, I would say to myself, what's the objection if I, fund summer camp or I fund the music lessons. But if they have a reason, you have to respect that. Yeah. If you don't, it's disrespectful. Yeah. That's that's really clear. So so it all comes back again to communication. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Opening up that communication and having regular family meetings, whether they're actually in person or whether they're on the phone or through Skype and having an agreement about how that communication happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what you've done, even if you don't Skype, you've established that we are going to talk as a family. We're not yeah. going to leave things unsaid. Mm-hmm. And everyone yeah. is free to be able to talk about a, an issue. And this is terrific when you're bringing in you know, the in-laws. You don't want the in-laws to be outlaws. So they have yes. to feel like they're part of the dialogue also because, you know, they're they're a co-parent for your grandchildren. I, you know, I, I go away with families and I run these multi-generation family meetings and sometimes people have come and said, well, do we have to include the in-laws? And I said, you have to include the in-laws. Your, your child is sleeping with that in-law and that in-law is a half-parent of your grandchildren. <laughs> I, I they, have a, they have a place at the table, right? <laughs> They better have a voice, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're coming to, we're beginning to come to a close here, so we want to just begin to wrap it up. And thank you very much, Lee, for your participation. This has been a really valuable discussion for uh, everybody. Yeah, and, and if, if, I, I'm sitting here. I've got three pages of notes from our conversation this morning, and I'm just thinking that um, for that your book, I'm guessing Lee, that your book has got some some real specific guidance for people who want to follow up on this, uh, how to talk to, fan, to to children, how to talk to parents, those kinds of things. Um, that, that that your book will provide some outline for these kinds now, of conversations. I, particularly the the most recent book called The Legacy Family really talks okay. a lot about this. Yeah, yeah, excellent. That's The Legacy Family, The Definitive Guide to Creating a Successful Multi-Generational Family. <laughs> yeah, that's a mouthful, yeah. but that's the book. <laughs> that's terrific. That's really terrific. Well, thanks so much, Lee, for for joining us today. Uh, Next week, we'll follow up with something we introduced a few weeks ago, Assembling Your Team. 
That's right. We've uh, we it was such an important conversation. We started it with Richard Wilson uh, on an episode a few weeks ago, and then we got a lot of feedback. And so we followed up. We're going to follow up next week. Um, and this is about assembling the resources that you need in order to be a successful family and even a successful individual. I've got families on my mind from today's conversation, but just for an individual too. Um, this might be the, the accountant, the financial planner. We're going to talk about who are the professionals you need on your team and what questions you should ask when you're interviewing these, these team members. Um, and then how once you build your team, what's the most effective way to use them and, and how they can uh, interact with each other to, to help you achieve your goals around your finances. So that's Great. coming up and next week. Great. And then on October 25th, our guest will be Dr. Tim Kasner, professor of psychology at Knox College. And Tim's done some really interesting work studying children and materialism. So join us for that. And in the meantime, we welcome your emails to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com, or you can like us or leave questions on our Facebook page. Yes, and, and we are now, our episodes are available on iTunes. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. And, and did you say on iTunes Radio? We can iTunes now- Radio, yeah. I think you can find us now on the new iTunes Radio. So uh, signing off for this week, I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr, and you have money in your life. Thank you for making money in your life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.